Dorus House, grey, compact, a little austere, stands at the foot of the Burren Hills, where Galway ends and Clare begins, looking out over the southern shores of Galway Bay, not a stone's throw from what Kate O'Brien has called the inexplicable floweriness of the Burren. Now a youth hostel, in 1890, it was the summer home of Florimont, Alfred, Jacques, Comte de Bastereau, Chevalier of the Order of the Holy Sepulchre and a good friend of Lady Gregory, the only person in Ireland, as W.B. Yeats says rather cryptically, who was in any real sense her friend. He had been my husband's warm friend. And always in the summertime, we used to go and spend at least one long day with him, we two, my husband and I, at first. And then later I went with my son and the boy and girl friends of his childhood. They liked to go out in a hooker and see the seals showing their heads or to paddle delicately among jellyfish on the beach. It was a pleasant place to pass an idle day. The garden was full of flowers. Lavender and carnations grew best, and there were roses also and apple trees, and many plums ripened on the walls. This seemed strange, because outside the sheltered garden there were only stone-strewn fields and rocks, and bare rock-built hills in sight, and the Bay of Galway, over which fierce storms blow from the Atlantic. The Count recalled a time when, on Garlic Sunday, men used to ride races naked, on unsaddled horses, out into the sea. But that wild custom had long been done away with by decree of the priests. Later still, when Harrow and Oxford took my son away, and I had long spaces of time alone, I would sometimes go to Duras to spend a few days. Who was he? Where did he come from, this master of Duras house, this stranger in the Banner country? Florimont Alfred Jacques Comte de Bastereau. To begin with, he was at least half Irish. His grandfather Bartholomew was born in 1742 and who had in his time been president of the Parliament of Bordeaux, married a Galway woman, Francis French of Douros, by whom he had a son, James. In 1792, 17 years after the death of Francis French, the last of her line, father and son, Bartholomew and James, fled to Ireland to escape the revolution in France and to claim the estates to which they had become entitled by marrying into the French family. As aliens and Catholics, Monsignor Fahey tells us, in his History and Antiquities of the Diocese of Kilmatdu, the laws of the period made it a matter of extreme difficulty for them to establish that claim. But establish it they did, and by 1799 James was settled in Ireland. Shortly afterwards, he married Miss Adelaide O'Brien of Ockram, a relative, incidentally, of Peter the Packer, and began to build a house which he called Prospect. To quote again from Monsignor Fahey, Difficulties with which he had to contend did not prevent him from indulging his artistic tastes. The residence which he erected and the plantations with which he clothed the undulations of the surrounding parks must have reminded him a little of picturesque France. And at a time when art was little known in Ireland, it is interesting to know that his leisure hours were fruitful of several paintings of no small merit, some of which still stand in the parish church of Kinvara. In 1836, James and his wife had a son, 
who was born in Paris on the 15th of September and christened Florimond Alfred Jacques. James clearly was not a good manager, and before his death, much of the land he had inherited had been sold in an attempt to meet his debts. Many years later, his son, Florimond, now living in the much smaller house at Doris, spoke to Yates and Lady Gregory of these days of his childhood in Ireland. He drove us through what had once been park, showed us where the walls had stood, what had been gardens, a naviary in the midst of it, where the avenue had wound, where, upon that avenue, he, a boy in his teens, and his father's men-servants, had thrown a barricade across it and stood with guns in their hands. His father had died in debt, and at that time a creditor could seize a body and prevent its burial until paid. The creditor arrived, but at the sight of armed men, fled. Bastero came first to Ireland. What manner of man was he? According to Yeats, he was a Catholic, an old man crippled by the sins of his youth, much devoted to his prayers, but an accomplished man of the world. Kate O'Brien describes him as... A committed pagan and worldling, with finicking fastidious ideas in regard to race and place. He wrote the biographical note attached to Gobineau's celebrated book Essai sur l'inégalité des races humaines. Greatly loved and respected by the quiet people round Ginvara. He lived always between Paris, Rome and Duras House. Could abide neither London nor Dublin. He thought Dublin a shabby England. Arthur Simmons, who knew him in Rome, speaks of him as... A strange, attractive figure, a traveller, a student of race, a student of history, with his courtly violence, his resolute pieties, his humorous prejudices, softening the rigour of a singular spiritual equanimity. Reticent, self-absorbed, and yet of gracious and affectionate temperament. For Lady Gregory, he was... A friend not easily forgotten. I know there is many a prayer still said on the roads between Kinvar and Barn, and Carnrow and Ballandarine, for him who was never without a bag of money to give in charity, and always had a heart for the poor. Even today, more than sixty years after his death, there are still men and women living near Doris who remember Florimond de Bastereau. And the man whose memory goes farthest back is Michael Quinn, now in his 90s. He recalls for us how, when Florimond was still a schoolboy, his father, James de Bastereau, called all his tenants together one Sunday after Mass. He gave order to the tenants, anyone that had a young lad at the same age, to bring him down after Mass, till they pick one out of the crowd that they'd bring to, 
to France to send them to college along with the son. So it is my uncle, my father's brother, they picked him as the one age with him, John Quinn. They brought him to France and sent him to college along with the son. And he was educated and when he was, he used to bring him out here for the two months of summer always. And when he was a certain age, he appointed him an agent here. And had the run of the house, the big house, while they'd be, while they'd be gone, and it, it, they had a lot of land, he had a lot of land too, you know. So they needed all the people around, which they get work in, in three weeks before he used to come, fixing up every place for the weather to be good looking when, you, when they'd come. In case you found that difficult to follow, what Mr Quinn told us was that his uncle, John, as a boy, was chosen by James de Bastereau to be educated in France with Florimont, and that, his education completed, he was appointed agent in Doris. This John Quinn could very well be the servant and steward mentioned by Lady Gregory. Monsieur Paul Bourget came more than once to stay in this barren district upon which he bestowed a witty name, Le Royaume de Pierre. It was to Monsieur Bourget, on his way to the modest little house and small estate at Duras, that the Count's old steward and servant introduced the Atlantic, when on the road from the railway station at Gort, its waters first come in sight. Voilà la mer qui baigne l'Amérique et les terres de Monsieur le Comte. Another man still living in Doris who knew the Count was John Glynn. The first time I got to know him, he was able to walk with a stick. He was a big, heavy man. You know, middle and old. Real, real good-looking too, mind you. An impressive Gray, man. Yes, yes. I suppose because you were a boy and very young, he probably looked a much older man to you than he was. Oh, he did, of course. Yes. And, of course, you still know young fellows what interest had on... on. In Yes, yes. Was he a pleasant man? Very pleasant. He used to have. He used to have um, every Sunday, at, after dinner, at two or three o'clock, the few neighbours around, young lads that had come around the yard there. He used to have those those you'd shake and have uh, horses. Do you know? Oh yes. And put down a few shillings and. Uh -huh. Do you understand? Yes. A crowd around him. For the local boys. For the local boys, yes. But do you know he was. He was a man that didn't understand anything. No. He had no understanding. Really. What do you mean by that? I'll tell you that he... Excuse me, he, he kind of... You could say what you'd like in all this. He wouldn't... He wouldn't mind or he wouldn't he understand? He wouldn't mind or he wouldn't understand. I don't know what he had, you know, a sheep from a cow uh -huh. once. Do you understand? That's the way kind but he was now. Yes, he was, he was an approachable man. You could yes. talk to him and you oh, didn't... Oh, yes, as often I was talking to him. You didn't have to watch your words. Oh, not to tell you. He didn't no. mind. And he took an interest in the life of the country round. Oh, yes, yes, he did. Special interest in his tenants, surely. You served mass as a boy, did you, Mr. King? I did, sir, I did. And the count was at those masses sometimes, was he? Yes, yes. Did you ever speak to him when you were a child? I did. I, he'd pull up. He'd stop on the road and tell the coachman to stop yeah. and have a chat with you. And I suppose that you'll be staying here now when your father leave it. And, uh, you know, oh, I see. Nice yeah. social talk. You never got a lift from him, did you? I, I did one. I, I, I took... <laughs> I was over Knocknish, about four miles from here. Couldn't garden for a man. 
do you know, he had a mowing machine and he had two young lads, the sons, and they weren't able to work it, so he asked me would I go over and cut the garden for him, so I said I would. Then as the evening came kind of wet and I was coming home, we had to get out of it. And he, they, they, he was, the coachman used to drive him over as far as this place. So the coachman was turning around just like that. He said, on the horses, and he beckoned at me, he said, and I sat up on the axle behind. <laughs> like him as far as the, the crossroad above. So you got a lift from the I car? I got a lift from the yes. That's <laughs> the lift I got now. Dennis Hines was eight years of age when he first met the Count. As he remembers him... He looked a fine tall man in side whiskers, black, but he was very, very lame, you know, disfigured. You know, not disfigured, but his bones. How did that happen? Have you any idea? Yes. He went to a way of Himself and some of the Blakes of, of Clark Valley Moore, two young lads. And I suppose with the gross misconduct or whatever they had, that he got that disease. And science was on. Count Blake that was here in Clough Ballymore, he never came to see him at all. They never was good friends. And then he lost a terrible lot of money. Then out he went to America and he would never be placed trying to cure himself. It was no good. So then he was an invalid. And he used to come home every, from August till September here beyond in this house. And he'd have to have a small car for carrying him out in the garden or out in the road. And then he'd have a carriage and two horses for bringing him to Mass. And they'd have to carry him off of the carriage, off of the big carriage into the chapel. He wasn't able to walk. My father always used to bring him board and he'd go, there was 11 boats in the village that time, but he was a great friend of my father's and he used to always bring him board and once or twice, three times maybe in the, with the term he'd be in it, between August and September. And he, he'd have the goths of Lockhooter and he'd have the groceries and he'd have Mr. Martin and he'd have those big, Shot along at him. Oh, he was a magistrate as well. He used to sit on the bench in Kimara. He only sat once. I heard them saying, but anyways, whatever he did, he made a mistake. He gave five or six months to one person. He was very sorry and he didn't seem to sit on that for. Mr and Mrs Sullivan both worked for the Count and Mrs Sullivan has vivid memories of the house as it was when Florimont lived there. It was beautiful, beautiful. Beautiful. You'd, we were small at the time, we'd give anything but to go as far as the gate to look in. And looking back at it now, what impressed you most about the house when you were small? Oh, it was beautiful, everything and anything was in it, and everything shining clean, up to date, right. It who, was lovely. Who did his cooking for him? He had a butler. Oh, the butler cooked? Yes, and the girls then... Lifted to, yes. Did you know the Count of Astro yourself, Mr. Sullivan? Well, I knew by his sight, but I had no comfort, ever any conversation with him. I did. Was the Count a good man to work for? Huh? Was the Count a good man? A very to work good for? man, very charitable man, he was. He was good while he was alive and indeed after his death. Oh, he was, yes, but he was. While he was alive, um, 
Did he get on well with the people around him? With, he did. With he the did. children, for example. He did faith with the children and the old people. And every summer he'd come home, all the old people, the old, the old, all the old people that owned the land in the tenants, they used to go to him and he used to give them money. And he used to have a private talk with all them. And would he give children money if he were to meet them? Oh, he would. And toss money there and he'd dry down to the ground. He'd pull up to the, to the, to the, the carriage he had, two horses, you know, and coachman driving him. He'd pull up there in the road and he'd test the money, he'd get the coachman to test the money for them. He'd enjoy them going to the ground. Was he popular with the children? Did they like him? He did very li- he did like them. And they liked him? They did faith. They should be watching him, they see him passing with them. Yeah. <laughs> they knew they'd get the money from him. They wouldn't be afraid to talk to him? Oh, no faith. He'd put talk on them. He was a very plain man to talk to. Mm-hmm. He was a very he, he fitted in pretty well? Oh, very good. Very good, he did. Oh, he was a grand man. Can you rem- can you remember him in your in your mind? I can, of course. What did he look like? He looked like a gentleman, but he was lame. He was crippled when he'd he come in. He had him when he'd come in to do <coughs> mass below. Now in the sacristy where he'd come, and the two men that used to be working for him would have to under his arm and. He'd throw himself down the seat and he was very heavy. He was disabled, the poor man. Can you remember when he'd be coming back here after being in France for the three months? Yeah. Can you remember that? I can. And such preparations you've never seen as be made for him. Oh, yes. Shine and everything. You'd love to go in the yard in it. After the original broadcast of this programme, we had a letter from Miss M.C. Kilkelly of Athlone, who pointed out very pleasantly that there are many collateral descendants of the Count de Bastero still in Ireland, and that they are, for the most part, members of the Kilkelly family. This information came as a considerable surprise. Clearly, further research was needed. This we undertook but the facts are hard to come by, and what we have been able to discover amounts to very little. Nevertheless, it is worth recording. It appears, then, that Florimond de Bastereau was not, as we had supposed, an only child. He must have had at least one brother or sister, for he had also a niece, and this niece married Fergus Kilkelly, Kilkelly who was born in Kinvara about 1874. From this marriage come the many Kilkelly descendants. Some documentary evidence of this connection exists in a letter written by Miss Mary Patrick Kilkelly to Mrs. Marion Kilkelly Moss in 1916. In the course of this letter, Miss Kilkelly says, When I was a girl, my father received a book of travels written by a young French nobleman, Vicomte de Bastereau, on the flyleaf of which he had written, To my kinsman, Patrick Kilkelly, from the author. As I had to translate it, I remember it well. But that happened when I was about 13, and is therefore ancient history now. In addition to this, there is another interesting association. Mrs Celia Lynch, who represents Dublin South Central in the Doyle, was born in Durus House, which her grandfather John Quinn bought on the death of Florimond de Bastereau. This was the John Quinn mentioned a few moments ago by Michael Quinn. He who was chosen to be a companion to Florimond and educated with him. In his forties he married and settled in Galway as Florimont's agent. 
and his first son was named Florimond, after the count who was his godfather. The name Florimond is still in fact in use in the Quinn family, and is borne by one of Mrs. Lynch's brothers. Such was the Count de Bastero, such his house at Doros, and it was in this house, Yeats tells us, that Lady Gregory and I talked over my project of an Irish theatre looking out upon the lawn, watching a large flock of ducks that was always gathered for his arrival from Paris. And that would be a very small flock, if indeed it were a flock at all, when he set out for Rome in the autumn. Lady Gregory herself gives an extended account of this historic afternoon. On one of those days in Duras in 1898, Mr Edward Martin, my neighbour, came to see the Count, bringing with him Mr Yates, whom I did not then know very well, though I cared for his work very much, and had already, through his directions, been gathering folklore. They had lunch with us, but it was a wet day and we couldn't go out. After a while, I thought the Count wanted to talk to Mr Martin alone, so I took Mr Yates to the office where the steward used to come to talk, less about business, I think, than about the land war or the state of the country or last year's deaths and marriages from Kinvara to the headland of Ohanish. We sat there through that wet afternoon, and though I'd never been at all interested in theatres, our talk turned on plays. Mr Martin had written two, The Heather Field and Maeve. They had been offered to London managers, and now he thought of trying to have them produced in Germany, where there seemed to be more room for new drama than in England. I said it was a pity we had no Irish theatre where such plays could be given. Mr Yates said that that had always been a dream of his, but he had of late thought it an impossible one, for it could not at first pay its way, and there was no money to be found for such a thing in Ireland. We went on talking about it, and things seemed to grow possible as we talked, and before the end of the afternoon we had made our plan. We said we would collect money, or rather ask to have a certain sum of money guaranteed. We would then take a Dublin theatre and give a performance of Mr Martin's Heatherfield and one of Mr Yates's own plays, The Countess Kathleen. I offered the first guarantee of £25. And so, in the words of Yates, Under the friendly eyes of Florimond, Alfred Jacques, Comte de Bastereau, Chevalier of the Order of the Holy Sepulchre, the Irish National Theatre, though not under that name, was born. Six years later, on the 15th of September 1904, death came for the Count of Doris, and his death was not without an element of drama. He went out this day out in the orchard after his dinner, and when they went out, he was speechless. So he died from that till six o'clock. And he was in a... The day was funeral anyways. There was two horses belonged to a Galway man. He was undertaker, Corn. No, four horses. And they, when the coffin was put, they had to put, make two coffins. He laid coffin and another... No coffin. And the coffin was bust. And they put him into the hearse. And it was very, it was not one that was able to do it, but they got paid for it. So he, the horse, four horses broke the harness, trying to move it. 
and they wouldn't move it since only for one parish priest that was in Kimara, Father Tom Bork. And he went over and he said, if you, whatever he said, and the horses went away. And uh, he was buried. So he had, his will was read in a couple of days' time, and he left five pounds to the poor of the parish. Everyone. So he was, uh, there was, there was a monument in t up there, it is up there at the cemetery, a flag, and uh, put over him. So that was the last. Not quite. Some weeks later, Lady Gregory received what she calls a sad, pompous, black-bordered document. Signed by those who have l'honneur de vous faire part de la perte douloureuse qu'ils viennent d'éprouver en la personne de Florimond d'Alfred Jacques, comte de Bestreau, chevalier de l'ordre de Saint-Sépulcre, leur cousin germain et cousin, who died at Duras, Ireland, September the 15th, 1904. La marquise la tour Maubourg, le vicomte et la vicomtesse de Bussy, la baronne d'Aquer de Montgaston, le marquis et la marquise de Courcival, le comte et la comtesse Gromy de Trana, la comtesse Irène d'Entrève, and so on and so on. I do not know whether the bearers of these high-sounding names keep him in their memory. It may well be that they do, for he was a friend not easily forgotten. But I know there is many a prayer still said on the road between Kinvara and Barron, and Curran Row and Ballandarine, for him who never was without a bag of money to give in charity and always had a heart for the poor. <laughs> 